Good morning. Good to see you all back again. Is this too loud? Sounds loud to me. Okay, thank you, Graham. No more talking from you. Okay, well, we're on our uh, third week of our series, Knowing God's Will, What It Is and What It Isn't. And uh, just as a way of a roadmap, we're still setting up a foundation to get to some application, um, but we'll, uh, we'll try to get to application towards the end of today's series. Um, I know a few weeks ago I gave you all uh, some of the resources I've used, but I failed to mention one of the main ones. Um, the, the book that I, that I recommend the most for anyone out there who just having a hard time with this subject is uh, Kevin DeYoung's Just Do Something. Here it is. looks like this because it is this. Um, so this is the best book, the most succinct, uh, I think the best teaching. He's funny. It's a quick read. And, uh, but kind of the, <clears throat> the guy that everyone knows about who's done the most on this topic, it's thick, but don't be intimidated. It's, uh, he does a lot of outlines and charts, and uh, this is Gary Friesen, uh, Decision-Making in the Will of God. Um, these are the main two books I'll, I'll, um, I'll steal from, and uh, so if you get a chance, pick these up. So um, let's pray and get started. Father, thank you again for a time to come together and fellowship. Father, thank you for giving us more clarity about what your will is. Father, we want to be productive and fruitful people. We ask that over time you renew our minds and make your desires our desires. Father, sanctify us. Father, thank you for the liberty and freedom you give us in making decisions. And uh, we ask that this time be fruitful for all of us. So Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, let's review again. This year we are. Um, <clears throat> okay, so finish my sentence. God loves you and has a... All right, so we learned last week what that, uh, where that came from and how that can be confusing for so many people. Um, we also learned that wonderful plan may be a bit different from what uh, God has in store for us and what we have Americanized it to be. Um, this statement has um, kind of invoked what I'll, ter- I'll, what I'll term today as the conventional model. And uh, we'll get into more detail about what that means later, but essentially the conventional model is this. <clears throat> the conventional understanding of God's will defines it as a specific pathway we should follow into the future. God knows what this pathway is and he has laid it out for us to follow. Our responsibility is to discover this pathway, God's plan for our lives. We must discover which of the many pathways we could follow is the one we should follow, the one God has planned for us. If and when we make the right choice, we will receive his favor, fulfill our divine destiny, and succeed in life. If we choose rightly, if we choose rightly, we will experience his blessing and and achieve success and happiness. If we choose wrongly, we may lose our way, miss God's will for our lives, and remain lost forever in an incomprehensible maze. Um, we talked about this last week and a little bit on the week before. I do think that that's where our modern church is. For those of us who aren't naturally bold and confident and um, we want to do God's will, we want to be obedient, but we just get lost and scared and we end up just running in circles, never going forward. In response to this, however, Kevin DeYoung, um, he suggests that maybe we have difficulty discovering God's wonderful plan for our lives because, if truth be told, he doesn't really intend to tell us what it is. And maybe we're wrong to expect him to do that. So, now we didn't get here overnight. This isn't something we thought of. Um, Quickly, one of the ways we got here is because we speak in Christianese, There are three ways that we uh, speak of God's will, and what's happened, as I've suggested last week, is we've conflated those. We've put those together, yet they have distinct, different meanings. We, first of all, speak of things happening according to God's will. Okay, uh, so who can give me the term, who can give me the theological term to get ahead of, of what that means? What's the theological term that we'd put on top of what's happening according to God's will? God's sovereign, so we call it the will of Attaboy, Matt. Will of degree. Um, 
We also speak of uh, doing God's will, obeying his commands. What do we call that? His will of, his will of, rhymes with mamand, it starts with the C. Out of boy, Graham, command. We also speak of, um, of finding God's will, and that's where we get in trouble. Now, all three of these are different. See, I was already ahead, but good job, Matt. Tim Chowley says, It's my belief and experience that much of the confusion in the church about what Christians are to believe and how they are to act stems from a poor understanding of the will of God. Christians absorb many words and phrases and ways of speaking without fully understanding what they mean. When people speak of desiring to know God's will, they may intend, they may intend to speak of one aspect of his will while unknowingly speaking of another. Hence, it's critical that we distinguish between them. R.C. Sproul also said, The practical question of how we know the will of God for our lives cannot be solved without any degree of accuracy unless we have some prior understanding of the will of God in general. Without the distinctions we have made, our pursuit of the will of God can plunge us into hopeless confusion and consternation. When we see the will of God, we must first ask ourselves, which will are we seeking to discover? It's really important when you're looking at this. Um, okay, so um, tell me some other ways. What, what are some other ways we describe God's will of decree? It's also known as what? Providence. Good. Very good. Okay. It's also called his, it's not, there you go. Good job. If I had candy, I'd give it out. Um, <laughs> got a pen. Um, he said, oh, y'all can't hear. I'm sorry. Secret will. His secret will. God's will of decree, also known as his decretive will or his secret will. All right. Now, um, what do you call God's will of command? What's, what's another way we refer to God's will of command? I'm sorry? His revealed will, that's right. His will of command, his will of desire is another way we refer to it. They're different, and we shouldn't confuse them, lest you be confused of what I'm trying to say. God's will of decree. God's will of decree. What God wills will happen, and what happens is God's will. Again, God's will of decree. What God wills will happen, and what happens is God's will, all right? It's also his secret will, and it's off limits to us. It was ordained from the beginning of time. And nothing we can do, thank goodness, nothing we can do can thwart God's will, all right? It should be comforting to us when we're making decisions. And there's God's will of command or God's will of desire. Best summary I've heard of this is if God's will of decree is how things are, the will of desire is how things ought to be. I mean, can just throw out some examples of God's will of decree. You don't have to cite chapter and verse, but give me some ideas of what God's will of command is. Do not love the world, that's right, or the things of this world. What else? Do not covet. Do not what? What else? What else are we commanded to do that we know is revealed in his will? Do not lie. Yeah, things like that. And these things were like, they, they come so natural to us, but how often do we use these revealed will, these things that God has revealed, to help us in decision making? Should I take this job? Yes. <laughs> yes, yes. I got some uh, lifesavers up here, I think. So, <clears throat> a few others. Uh, For this is the will of God, 1 Thessalonians 4.3, your sanctification. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.18, give thanks in all circumstances. All this, and there's just, when you especially read some of these books, it's just a litany of things that God has revealed that help us in everyday circumstances. It's not some dead letter. There's a ton of stuff that we can borrow from in making little decisions and big decisions. Um, so, <clears throat> why are we still so confused? Last week I suggested that there are five reasons. And the first one is a good one. It's, this, it's, it's that we genuinely want to do God's will. Most people that I know of and um, that have troubles with this idea aren't trying to be disobedient. They really, really want to do God's will. But they are stuck because they can't see it 
God hasn't disclosed the future and they feel like if I don't know which way to go, I can't move forward. And so the consequence of that is they don't move anywhere and they've basically chosen that. Or they've chosen it, whether they know they've chosen or not, they've chosen nothing because they haven't moved forward. Secondly, uh, we're naturally timid. Some of us just aren't bold naturally. And so we're timid. That causes us indecision. And when you combine that natural tendency with some poor theology, you get a person who just does not know what to do when. Um, We also want perfect fulfillment. A lot of us who grew up in the church, especially, um, has a high view of doing good in the world and for God. And we get to be adults and we realize that we haven't all been called to be evangelists and pastors and missionaries. We work in the factory, we own a business, we are an employee, and we have a hard time seeing that that is equally as glorifying to God as the person on the mission field. It's Luther who said that uh, if you uh, are a shoemaker, that you should make a quality shoe, sell it for a fair price, and that is equally glorifying to God as the pastor. That's the doctrine of vocation that we should really take to heart. Another issue on the fact that we want perfect fulfillment is that, honestly, we're just kind of spoiled. You know, our parents and grandparents um, were in a different financial state. The economy was different. They uh, were building. There was the Industrial Revolution. There was a big emphasis on growing, raising your family, and providing. If you could, at the end of the day, say that you provided for your family, they had a house over their head, and maybe even gave them some money for education, you had done something. But now, big deal. Now we want more. We want perfect fulfillment. And we've all been told, as a younger generation, that we can do anything. And um, as I went into last week, that may not exactly be true. Um, We also have way too many choices. I think I read off the litany of the grocery store analogy last week, and there's just so many choices. And you would think that that's a good thing, and it can be a good thing, I guess, in some sense. But the negative side of that is that it can totally be paralyzing. We just don't know which way to go because if we choose one, we make a decision. That's the death of another option. So the moment you choose to marry Jane, Susie's off as an option. And and that's, thank you, hopefully, Matt, he says. Um, There's just so many options out there with internet dating and with all the different job sites. We can never just sit down and relax and enjoy what we have. And finally, we're cowards. Remember last week I compared um, our situation to that, to that of, of uh, Esther, where she finally goes and says, if I perish, I perish. Esther was a man. She did good. I mean that in the sense that she was strong and courageous. <laughs> Just in case y'all were confused. <laughs> Would you help me here? Okay, so now let's start starting to uh, kind of slot our way into some application. Let's look at the conventional will of finding, uh, of finding God's will. Now, as you're reading this, remember, I'm, I'm speaking against this, okay? But this is the conventional will that I really think a lot of us have in our default mode, whether we are admitted or not, um, at least I have throughout my life. The premise of the conventional will says that God has a perfect plan or will for each of our decisions, Okay? The purpose of that is the goal of, the, of each believer is to discover God's individual will and make decisions according to that will. So here's how we do it. We interpret inner impressions and outward signs. We'll, we'll talk about those later as far as open and closed doors, which the Holy Spirit uses to communicate God's individual will for our lives. And so how do we know if we made a good decision or a bad decision? The confirmation is that you've correctly discerned God's will comes from inner peace and outward successful results. So, you make a big decision in life, you marry someone, things are going well about five years into the marriage, good decision, you found God's will. Conversely, you marry someone, five years into your marriage, you're struggling, you're having a hard time, and you realize you're a sinner, you must have made a bad decision. That is bondage, okay? That's not freeing. The, the, the interesting thing is the whole idea of the conventional view is to help you find out God's will. But the result is that we are further enslaved by more law. 
we can't move forward because we just don't know what to do. We don't know the methods or tactics to find out God's will. Last week I also said that um, if you go to the local Christian bookstore, there's going to be a couple aisles on this topic alone. There's so many books on how to find the secret, how to tap into the divine will of God. And um, that's, uh, that's enslaving. Now, there is some biblical support uh, for this. It's not like people have made this up out of, out of thin air. <clears throat> for example, uh, Psalm 32.8, I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Okay? You can see where in that text someone might gleam the conventional model out of that. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. Acknowledge him and he'll make your path straight. Some of us have taken the conventional model and applied that theory on top of that verse. Um, now, I don't really have a, the time or the linguistics to go into all these verses, but um, in that book I suge- suggested earlier, Decision-Making in the Will of God, Gary Friesen goes through a lot of these verses that, um, that we've used in the past to support the conventional wisdom, and he just goes verse by verse and, um, and unpacks how they're just way off on their exegesis. They're just really off on how they view the scriptures. Um, I'll give you an example. Uh, Psalm 32, 8 says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. I will count you with my eye upon you. Now, the conventional view sees the way which you should go as referring to your individual um, discoverable will. The, this phrase, however, refers to the way of a righteous living. Okay? refers to how we live righteously, which goes into sanctification. This is not a verse about our individual discoverable will. Um, Okay. Trying to get through here. Hey! (laughs) Problems with the conventional approach. Don't be like him. Anybody know who that is? That's Damon. Y'all didn't know. (laughs) I was so looking forward to this moment, but it just didn't go over as well as I thought it would. Thank you, Jen. Okay, in the, in the chapter in uh, Just Do Something by um, Kevin DeYoung, he has a chap- chapter entitled um, Our Magic 8-Ball God. Anybody ever had those little, little magic 8-Balls that has the water and there's the little uh, cube or whatever, a pyramid inside of it, and you shake it up and you ask it a question? Should I ask her out? Shaky, shaky, shaky. Look it up. Maybe. Ugh. Should I ask her out? Shaky, shaky, shaky. It's doubtful. Oh, that's a lot. That's similar to how we approach um, making decisions with the conventional approach. But there's some problems with that other than what I just suggested. And the first is that it tends to make us focus on non-moral decisions. Okay? Um, the conventional approach to the will of God, where God's will is like a corn maze with only one way out and lots of dead ends, or like a bullseye with the center of God's will in the middle and second best everywhere else. Or like, to, or like a magic eight ball that we are supposed to shake around until some generic answer floats to the top, is not helpful. It's not good for our decision making. It's not good for our sanctification. And sometimes it's frankly dishonoring to Christ. That's what Pastor Kevin DeYoung said. The Bible doesn't tell us to live in Lubbock or Fort Worth, although that seems fairly obvious. <laughs> hey, I'm from Lubbock. I'm, I meant, um, doesn't tell us who to marry doesn't tell us what to do for a vocation. And these are all really important, but they're not as important as to your sanctification. The most important issues for God are moral purity, theological fidelity, compassion, joy, our witness, faithfulness, hospitality, love, worship, and faith. These are God's big, big concerns. The problem is that we tend to focus most of our attention on everything else. We obsess over the things God has not mentioned and may never mention, while by contrast we spend little time on all the things God has already revealed to us in the Bible. I mentioned to you all that uh, Sarah and I had a difficult time when we were in Minnesota, and that is a true statement for us. There were several times towards the end that we just looked at each other and we're like, we are sick of talking about ourselves. We're talking about us all the time. What should we do? How should we do it? Who should we call? And we looked up and months had gone by and we had done nothing for other people. 
We've done nothing for our own sanctification. We've done nothing in the sense of worshiping our Lord. We had talked about ourselves a lot. We were sick of being selfish, but that's one of the consequences of the conventional approach. It also implies that we have a sneaky God. God has this will somewhere hidden, and if you just pray hard enough or faithful enough, you can get there. But if you don't, he may get you. Okay? That's not our Father. That's not, that's not this one. Just kidding. Um, later I'll teach on Arminianism versus Calvinism, another exciting topic. Um, this makes God into a tricky little deity who plays hide-and-seek with us. We end up angry with God and frustrated that we can't find God's will for our lives. Right? It also encourages a preoccupation with the future. Remember how God's will of decree is secret. Essentially what we want to know when we're doing this is we want to know if it's going to work. We want to know if we get there, is it going to be okay for our kids? Um, if I marry her, will it be okay? If I take this job, will I make money? If I go to this college and major in this thing, will it help me in the future? We still want to, whether we admit it or not, we want to know the future so that we can always choose the prosperous thing. And I made the suggestion last week that if that really were God's will, how would we grow in our trust with the Lord? How would we become more faithful and trusting God if we always knew what the future was? We wouldn't need him because if left to myself, I'm always going to choose the easy, comfortable path. That's my default. That's my sin nature, and I'll always do it. But God, in loving me, wanting me to be more like Christ, has hidden that will from me. Jesus promised, though, that he will be with me always. He's promised to work all things for good for those who love the Lord. The question is, do I trust that? And so we obsess about the future and we get anxious because anxiety, after all, is simply living out the future before it gets here. That's what Kevin DeYoung says. Um, and because we are obsessed with the future and, in, and even the most zealous God-will seeker would admit, he doesn't show us. And because of that, we're anxious. Hence, the conventional approach causes anxiety, which we're commanded not to be. Do not be anxious. That's not only an admonition to us, but it's an issue of sin. He commands us, do not be anxious. Now, why would he command us not to be anxious if, one, he's not trustworthy? And secondly, if we can find out the future. If I knew the future, I wouldn't be so anxious. But the reason he's telling us don't be anxious is because he knows that we don't know the future. He does. Okay? James says, come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Another text that clearly teaches the sovereignty of God in this area. If we live a long and prosperous life, God willed it. If we live a short and a life marked by suffering, God willed it. No one wants pain, but we can take comfort that what he wills will happen. We don't have to fret about the future. We don't control it. We don't know it. And we can't change this. And we can't change it. Um, fourth reason says that he also undermines personal responsibility. This is a big one. Um, when I was at Baylor um, in undergrad, uh, one of the churches in, in Waco, um, I'll try to leave some of the details out, but uh, one of the churches in Waco uh, fired, it was a Baptist church, and fired its first pastor, or excuse me, fired its pastor, and hired uh, a female pastor uh, to replace that pastor. It was a big deal in the news, and uh, I was friends with one of, um, one of my friends, his father was a deacon or elder at this church and was one of the men mainly responsible for the firing and the hiring of this uh, woman. Now, without getting into all the theology of a woman being a pastor, um, I remember ha going to lunch with him. And, of course, who am I? You know, I'm 20 years old, asking questions. But I remember asking him, you know, how he got there and what he thought about it. And he was so strong. He, was, um, he said, Chris, I've never felt more of a peace throughout this process. God's been with me the whole way. I've never felt more of a peace through this process. Okay, what's that mean? It means that's a conversation stopper, right? We're done talking. 
who am I to object to his peace that the Holy Spirit gave him? Okay? It makes decisions we have made, you, it makes them unobjectionable. You can't object to someone who says, God told me this, or the Holy Spirit gave me this. So instead of just saying, look, I made a decision, and I'll live with the consequences, he layered over it peace of God, and therefore made it impenetrable by anyone else. Um, how many of y'all have also uh, heard, have been uh, rejected by a girl saying, um, it's not God's will for y'all to be together, prayed about it, and uh, God doesn't want y'all to be together? Oh, really, I'm the only one? Really? <laughs> Well, um, I'm not sure what that means. Again, another way that we have avoided any personal responsibility for what happened. Instead of just saying, look, Damon, I don't like you. Um, we endorse our decision to rid ourselves of Damon by saying uh, God doesn't want us to date. Um, he needs to spend, I need to spend time, you know, being with Jesus. Of course, whenever you hear that, it, maybe it's just a Baylor. Maybe it's a common thing at Baylor. <laughs> it was like manual 101 for how to dump a guy, go with God. And, um, but the irony was, every time you heard that, just God doesn't want us to date right now. Like a week later, she's dating someone. But I guess the, I don't know, her sanctification was up by then, I guess. Um, also, just because you've prayed about something doesn't put your decision beyond objection, Okay. Obviously, we want to know that um, we've prayed about something. Take a church, for instance. We want to know that the elders have prayed about something. But just because they've prayed about it doesn't necessarily mean it's beyond question. It doesn't mean that they won't, in fact, a week later go back and go, hey, let's reconsider this. Okay? So um, it avoids, or excuse me, it undermines personal responsibility for decisions. Uh an author by the name of Haddon Robinson states, if we ask, how can I know the will of God? <clears throat> we may be asking the wrong question. The scriptures do not command us to find God's will for most, of life to, for most of life's choices, nor do we have any passage instructing on how it can be determined. Equally significant, the Christian community has never agreed on how God provides us with such special revelation. Yet we persist in searching for God's will because decisions require thought and sap energy. We seek relief. We seek relief from the responsibility of decision making, and we feel less threatened by being passive rather than active when making important choices. We shouldn't use God as an excuse. And fin- finally, the conventional uh, approach causes us to lean on subjectivity. If we're constantly waiting on an inner peace to make a decision, we'll do very little, especially with the big decisions. We'll never take risks because we're unsettled. We never feel a peace. Um, Kevin DeYoung says, the fact is most big decisions in life leave us feeling a little bit unsettled. They are, after all, big decisions. When you decide to get married or move or buy a house, it will be scary because it's big and new and unknown and should be permanent. But this doesn't mean the Lord's withholding peace about the decision in order to get you to back out. Now, seriously, how many of us have used and at least have heard I just felt at peace about it. Now, I know in a sense what that means. I know that you're communicating to the person that you feel good about what you did. You're not necessarily saying that God divinely revealed to you a peace. Some of us mean that. And when you say that, it can be really tricky. Um, we have a friend, um, sweet friend, sweet couple, and um, she is um, on the charismatic kind of side of things. Um, and uh, when you're with her, she will articulate that she prays and asks God for everything. And recently, we were with them during Christmas, and uh, the topic of a Christmas tree came up. I'm not sure what the transition was, but Christmas tree topic came up. And she said that several years ago, God told her not to have a Christmas tree, and that she shouldn't have a Christmas tree until God told her otherwise. But fortunately, this year, God told her to have a Christmas tree, so they have a Christmas tree. And um, I don't mean to mock that, but man, that can be really burdensome. If you have to wait to find out to get a Christmas tree, what about the other decisions? What about jobs and marriages and schools and children and how to deal with health care? It's really burdensome. I'm not saying that she and others aren't well-intentioned, but that we shouldn't 
We shouldn't equate our gut feelings or impressions because most of the times that's what they really are. We shouldn't equate those to the word of God, okay? Kevin Young says, if there really is a perfect will of God, that's what I'm calling the conventional way, we are meant to discover in which we will find tremendous freedom and fulfillment. Why does it seem that everyone looking for God's will is in such bondage and confusion? Christ died to give us freedom from the law. See Galatians 5.1. So why turn the will of God into another law leading to slavery? And to make matters worse, this law is personalized, invisible, and indecipherable. Whereas the Mosaic law, which was hard enough already, was at least objective, public, and understandable. What a burden. Expecting God through our subjective sense of things to point the way for every decision we face, no matter how trivial, is not only impractical and unrealistic, it's a recipe for disappointment and false guilt. And that's hardly what intimacy with Jesus should, uh, should be all about. Um, the thing I want to mention about this one last topic about, on subjectivity is, in my experience, the people who um, are just naturally bold and confident really have, or they think they have, little problem with this. They make a decision quickly, and then they go forward without ever looking back, which <clears throat> in some sense is a really good thing. We need people going forward and moving and leading. The problem is they're really hard to turn around when what they've done is, and it was, is wrong because they've endorsed what they've done by saying it's God. That's been based on their own subjectivity. That's where it gets, that's where it gets tricky. And the problem for those of us who aren't naturally bold movers or shakers is we just don't move because we're waiting to have a feeling. But when we do big things, like we move, we take another job, we don't feel settled because it's a big decision. So, good news. Is there a better way? Yes, the old-fashioned way. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Now, now we're going to go forward on the way we should go, but here's what I want to throw out there. When I started reading some of this stuff and just being completely candid about um, the books that's, you know, that tell us what we should do, a lot of them just go straight to the scriptures and try to work on our heart and our attitudes and our motives. I found it kind of dejecting. Like, oh, you mean there really isn't something I can rub and the genie comes out? I, you know, um, um, but I would suggest, and, and Kevin Young does the same thing, he suggests that to the degree that that is upsetting to us and the degree that that isn't good news tells us something about where we are, tells us something about our heart that when we find out that the will of God is confined to the scriptures, if that's unsettling for us, it tells us where we are with our love for his law and for his will. So just think about that as we're moving forward. It was convicting for me, and, and maybe it is for you as well. Um, could someone read aloud Matthew 6, 25 through 34, please? I'll give you a second to turn to it. Matt, will you do it? And can you speak up loud for the folks in the back? Oh, that's good stuff. <clears throat> it doesn't really sound like a ringing endorsement of the conventional approach to finding God's will, does it? Um, but it's comforting. It's comforting that we have a Father who is sovereign and that micromanages us and that all these things will be added to us if and when we, if and when we seek 
his kingdom. Um, so what does he want from us? How do we go about doing this? According to his revealed will, we are to first be sanctified. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Uh, Kevin DeYoung says that when he teaches on this topic, he constantly goes up to young people and says, Hey, I know God's will for your life. And they're always excited to hear it. Oh, sweet. And, um, but he always says, your sanctification. That's God's will for your life. Your sanctification. They're always like, no. That's it? But that's the truth. That's what he wants for us. He wants us to be more and more like Jesus Christ. Okay? This is God's goal in our big decisions and little ones. And how often do we apply that in our decision making? How often do we, in considering a job, think, okay, now I will make more money. That's a good thing. But I'm going to work a lot more. My wife is stretched beyond imagination right now. Is this good for my sanctification? Is this good for my wife's sanctification and my children's? Um, We're moving to such and such town. It sounds like a fun town. We get there and we don't even look at whether or not they have a good church that teaches the gospel, teaches the scriptures. Um, Okay. Secondly, 1 Thessalonians 5, chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. We're commanded to rejoice, we're commanded to pray, we're commanded to in all things give thanks. That's his will for us. Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 10. And so from the day we heard, we have, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now, it sounds like there is some attainment of a knowledge of God's will in this verse. Um, so why does Paul here want the Colossians to be filled with the knowledge of his will? Is it to help us with making decisions? To help us decide what, where to go to college or whether or not we should go into ministry? or whether or not we should buy a house? Um, No. Read on further. It says, So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. So God wants us, or Paul says, to be filled with the knowledge of His will so that we can walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. It's not... It's about who we are becoming, not where we are. And that is something I need to know more and more in my own life. It's about who we are becoming and not where we are. Finally, God wants us to be spirit-filled. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of God is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Uh, Gerald Sitzer summarized this by by saying, and what is the will of God? Is it some specific specific secret plan God has for us and wants us to spend days, weeks, or even years discovering? Not at all. Rather, it consists of a sober life, living in the power of the Holy Spirit, and offering praise and gratitude to God for his goodness. Paul's main concern is how, excuse me, is about how believers should conduct themselves in ordinary life. Okay? So, oh, sorry, I think I had a question. Um, So, go on, get married if you're equally yoked. Um, Get a job, as long as it's not wicked. Just be spirit-filled. Okay. So we see where we're going here. We want sanctification. We want, to, we want to pursue the things God's revealed to us. And so but we also know there's, there's ample scriptures that tell us that God guides us. Okay? How, does he guide, how, how does he guide us? And does he still speak to us? Um, J. Adams states that the first and absolutely fundamental fact is that there is no way to know God's will and to receive his guidance apart from the scriptures. Secondly, there are scriptural principles and practices to cover all circumstances of life. 
available to, available to those who take the time and make the effort to understand and know the Bible adequately. Um, okay, if you would, turn your, uh, turn your Bibles to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1. All right. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Okay? So God speaking through his son includes first... Jesus is imaging forth what God is like. We see what he did and what he said, and we know more about who God is because we watch Jesus. We see what what he's like, and we know that's the character and attributes of God. That's one way God that Jesus speaks to us through the scriptures. Now, a few things you have to understand about Hebrews. First of all, Hebrews is deeply grounded in the Old Testament, right? And several texts as you go through the scriptures are quotes and references to Old, text, Old Testament text. Um, and you also have to understand that now Hebrews, remember, is written after the life of Christ. Christ has been resurrected, excuse me, has been buried, uh, died, buried, resurrected, and ascended into heaven. This is written after all that. Now, go to Hebrews chapter 3. Okay? Hebrews chapter 3. Uh, verse 7. One of the things I said is that uh, Hebrews comments on Old, text, Old Testament text, and this verse is a quote from Psalm 95. Okay? Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Okay? Notice the term, as the Holy Spirit says. A few years ago, I, um, I taught on uh, the doctrine um, of Revelation, or the doctrine of the Scriptures. And this and a ton of others were just like this, where you would think that God's about to refer to himself, but he interchangeably refers to the Holy Spirit and the Scriptures, that they're one and the same. So what happens in our approach to God's will is we tend to have those over here who are charismatic, who are waiting to hear from a direct revelation from the Holy Spirit. And those stodgy people over here who are just the Bible thumpers, were just, you know, just the scriptures. But what we don't understand is the people that are searching the scriptures are still hearing from the Holy Spirit through the means of the scripture. It's a really big deal. This is a good example because it tells us, as the Holy Spirit says, not as he said back then, as he says. So when we go to the scriptures and we learn it and we take it in and we digest it, the Spirit is constantly speaking through this means that God has ordained. That's good news. It's public. It can be discussed. It can be read and studied, and it's all for us. Um, then Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Now, of course, we can get in some danger here if we don't know the Scriptures well. We can kind of pick and choose without context. Right? Pastor Dan is constantly telling us, Context is, yes, see, works. They talk. It's great. Um, one of the founders of Multnomah Bible, uh, is that, am I saying that right, Multnomah Bible? Thank you. Um, I couldn't, thank you. Uh, he had a, one of his favorite expressions uh, they end up putting on the entrance of the college library, and it says, don't you folks ever read your Bibles? And that hits this, you know, right on the head. There's a lot of us, even though we grew up in the church, we really, if we're honest, we really don't know the scriptures. Um, there was a study done several years ago by a sociologist, Christian Smith. Have you all heard of this? Uh, there's a book and a documentary called um, uh, Teenagers and Their Gods. Have you all heard of this? He was a sociologist out of North Carolina. He now is at Notre Dame. And they did this, um, I don't know, several-year study on what teenagers believed about God. And they went all over the country, and they, and they interviewed anyone who professed any real faith, whether it be Buddhism or Mormonism 
or evangelicalism or Catholicism, whatever it is, anyone who claimed to profess some faith they interviewed. And uh, his, results, his results were that teenagers today are moralistic, therapeutic deists. Okay? Moralistic in the sense that God wants us to be good, therapeutic, we can call on him when we're in trouble, deist. We're all kind of the same. It's just a God out there, and we just have different names. Moralistic, therapeutic, deist. And uh, one of the most disturbing things he said is he would go talk to all these teenagers, and he said um, that when they started asking questions about their faith, it, it became embarrassing. That the teens, once they kind of got past uh, God died for my sins, that they really couldn't give you any coherent answer as to what they actually believe. And um, he was just saying from the standpoint of a sociologist that that's disturbing because um, that wouldn't have been the same 100 years ago. That even though the people 100 years ago may reject the faith of their fathers, they would at least have known the faith they rejected. Whereas now, I I think of the emergent group or, or others, people are rejecting a faith of their fathers, but if you ask them what they're rejecting, they can't even articulate the most basic tenets of Christianity. He said if you start um, asking an evangelical kid, you know, what he believes, he could tell you basically that Jesus died for his sins. He's a sinner. Um, but after that, he just kept wanting to tell you about um, his old testimony, what God's done for me. But just really shallow on doctrine. Talking to a Catholic, it was um, they, want, they wanted to talk to you about the Eucharist, but that's it. Um, okay, so just quick, quick quiz. Of all the uh, religions out there, who would you say did the best on this um, study? Just give me a guess what you think would be the best. What, what, what? Wow, I, I wouldn't have guessed that, but Mormons, that's it. They were the best at knowing their stuff. Um, Catholics, evangelicals, kind of together at not knowing our stuff. The point is we have to know the whole counsel of God. It takes years to do this, but we have to make that a priority in our lives. The guy that wrote this book, um, Decision Making the Will of God, one of the things he does is he'll go do seminars, and uh, he'll hold... Um, I forgot what he called them, um, read-throughs, where they'll go for a weekend and they'll have like a youth group and they'll take you know, the New Testament and they'll just read out loud all the way through it. He says it takes um, 19 hours to read the New Testament aloud, uh, taking five-minute breaks every two hours. And of course, you know, it also helps to be at a church where we preach the Word of God, that we memorize the Word of God. Some people catechize. Tons of ways to do this, but we've got to make knowing the whole counsel of God through the scriptures, a priority, or we're always going to be foolish and wanting more of his will. Um, J.I. Packer observed, um, Christianity in North America is 3,000 miles wide and a half inch deep. Too many of us know, quote, enough scripture to be annoying, but not enough to be transformed. Okay, okay things to avoid. <clears throat> When you are trying to apply what we've learned and trying to now find out God's will. We've only got a few minutes left, so we may not get through this. When do I need to stop, Pastor Dan? Oh, okay. <laughs> Let me apply the will of God for your lives in three minutes or less. Um, okay, um, I have another week, so we'll just start into this, and then we'll bleed into the, uh, next, into the next week. Um, I'll go with a, a popular one first, and that is um, the whole open and closed door thing. Um, I don't want to step on too many toes because I'm sure that a lot of us have used this in the past and may still use this terminology. It's kind of become a little Christianese in our, in our circles. And of course, there is a good sense of this. I'm not saying this is a bad thing. Um, if, for example, um, you are applying for a job and an employer calls and offers a job to you, that appears to be an open door. Okay? It's good to walk through that thing, take that job, okay? But we don't necessarily, we can't necessarily say that that event that took place, that your understanding of what that means is God's understanding, okay? Let me give you an example. Um, let's say we all want to go and be missionaries in India, okay? We've, uh, we've got our support, we're on track, we fill out all our paperwork, and uh, we applied for a visa. But we end up finding out just before we le- we're leaving that uh, our visa's turned down. Okay? What are the possible interpretations of that event? We want to go to India. We've lined up everything we need to do to go, 
everything we need to do to go to India, and then ultimately uh, a circumstance appears as though there's a closed door. Okay, possible interpretations. What timing? Bad timing. Maybe I should wait. Maybe I should wait till later. I need to get some more stuff done. Say it again. Exactly. Maybe I'm going to the wrong place. Maybe they're down the road. Okay. What else? Maybe I shouldn't be a missionary. Maybe I was just about to make a biggest uh, biggest mistake in my life, and God saved me from that. Ooh, good thing. Visa got denied. Um, yeah, maybe I shouldn't be a missionary in India. Um, I know what. I know what. God's testing me. God's testing me right now, and I need to purge ahead and move forward, no matter what the obstacles are. See my point here? If you see an event as some divine sign, and you start thinking about it, you're going to run into a lot of problems. Okay? We don't know, oftentimes, why God does what he does. Who can know the mind of God? His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And that's why this can be a real problem. Uh, J. Adams says, remember now, open doors can lead to elevator shafts. <laughs> um, I need to have a tough conversation with my sister. We've had some conflict. I need to have a tough conversation, so I need to call her tonight. Oops, I'm out of minutes. That means... God's will is for me not to call my sister and avoid that thing I don't want to do. Uh, it's one of the examples that Kevin DeYoung uh, made. It's a good one. Um, okay. Let's stop here. Um, any questions uh, before I move on? We have one week left, and just so you know where we're going, we'll, I don't have much more to go on things to avoid. And then, just so you know, we're going to get to um, the way of wisdom going to get proverbial, how to go about storing up God's word, seeking wise counsel when we feel unwise and we're uncertain of where to go, and finally, how does prayer play a part in us making decisions? And then we'll just get practical. We'll talk about uh, jobs and marriages, vocation, ministry, and uh, I'd ask you if you have some questions to ask me after class, maybe we can talk about them in the next uh, and last session. Um, thanks for your time this morning. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you so much for being our Father. Thank you very much for your sovereignty, Lord. Thank you very much for protecting us from ourselves. Lord, help our unbelief. Lord, change our desires to be more of what you desire for our lives. Let us see the things that are important to you as important to us. Let's put away the things that are of less importance to you so that they would be less important to us. Let us pursue our sanctification with joy. Let us trust you whether we are in trial or in prosperity. Lord, all we want is to be more like you. Father, forgive us for our unfaithfulness. Be merciful to us. So, Christ, let me pray. Amen. Thank you all.